a life of leisure, a life of boredom. And we ended by looking at what Rogers, remember Rogers Curvin? He was about to sell his business at the age of 43 for, for like 50 million bucks. And before he did, he went and talked to two men that he knew had done the same thing several years before. And he, sh he was shocked to find that both of them were divorced, apparently from having affairs, you know, in their boredom and playing with their toys. They ended up cheating on their wives. And so he went out and interviewed 30, found 36 people, 36 people who in their 40s sold their businesses for at least $45 million. And of the 36, 34 of them had gotten divorced. Welcome to Reliable Truth with best-selling author Richard E. Simmons III. And now your host, Richard E. Simmons III. Hi, guys. Hi, George. You got a lot of talkers back there. Those, those three right there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we got good old Sam, doesn't say much, but these guys. We'll make them, Sam, Sam's well behaved, I'll put it that way. All right. We wanted to sit up right next to you, but refused. All right, let's pray. Now, Father, we love you. We thank you for just your goodness and your mercy and your love for us. And we uh, thank you for this time together. We ask that you would uh, just be here in our midst, uh, that you would speak into our lives, Father, that you would teach us what we need to hear, that you would challenge us, uh, that you'd move in our lives. Uh, we ask that your Holy Spirit would just fall on this place and that we would clearly hear your voice. We commit this time to you now in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right. Um, last week and this week, I'm, I'm kind of following up on what we did last week. Um, usually the last two weeks of, of uh, around, you know, the weeks around Memorial Weekend, we have lighter attendance, uh, even though this week has been, we've, we've seen a big uptick, but... Um, and so I figured I, we, I would put off the book of John until next week. We'll go the next four weeks. We'll be in the book of John, finishing up the Friday lunch on June the 30th, and then we'll take July off. All right, but we'll be, we're going to be back in John 8. I'll send out an email on Friday, I mean on Sunday, and uh, just telling you, I think we're going, like I'm certain we're going to look at John chapter 8, verses 1 through 30. That'll be next week, though. Um, but let me give you take just a minute to talk about, or I guess give a review of what we talked about last week, and then we're going to kind of continue down that path. Um, we looked at, at Jesus's words to Peter, really to the disciples, uh, when he said, "You know, I must be killed." I must, you know, he, he didn't say this is going to happen. He says, "I must. This must happen." And um, Peter hears it and doesn't like it and goes and actually rebukes Jesus. And you see the rebuke in Matthew 16. He said, Lord, I'm not going to let this happen to you. And what you had was Peter had this picture of the way he wanted life to be. What he wanted the future to be. And Jesus comes along and blows up that picture when he forms the disciple that he's going to die. And what we saw was that Peter's will was not aligned with God's will. It clearly was aligned with Satan's will. And Satan does have a will, 2 Timothy 2.26. And that's why he comes and says, Get thee behind me, Satan. And then we spent time considering about 
or taking a look at our pictures. You know, what what is, what is my picture? Because I mean, as, as let's face it, as I look around, um, you know, we're well on into life, and you know, here you are today, and somewhere out here is is the time that you're going to die and go home, and so you've got this amount of time left. You know, what what is your picture for the rest of your life? What do you want life to be like for you? And when we start talking about what is it that men really want, we then turn to Luke 12 and look at verses 16 to 21 about the rich fool. Come on in, Thornton. About the rich fool. And as I look around, I realize all of you weren't here, so I'll just share this, that the number one goal for, and I think I'll say this predominantly men, but it's probably true of women as well, out in the workforce, is that the number one goal for middle-aged people who are in middle and upper income brackets, their number one goal, if you remember, is early retirement. I was reading something today about, you know, people that are trying to retire by the time they're 40. And this is the way, and it was, it was, this is on the, I go to this, uh, it's a Yahoo business site that I like to go to, and they have different articles. And it had, these are the things you need to be doing if you're going to retire by the time you're 40. So this is something that, that, that uh, is obviously on the minds of a lot of people. And we talked about why. And I went over this, this graph. Um, as you can see on this axis, you've got responsibility and challenge. High, low, you've got skill and education, high and low. And the guy, uh, I call him Mihaly. That's not even the way you pronounce his name, but he's a, a Hungarian economist. He came up with this, and he said, for instance, you know, if you're right, where you want to be is what he calls flow, where your skill and education matches up with the challenge and responsibility you have in your job. He says the problem is for for so many many people they're up in here, or they're in here, or they're they're out of flow, and when you're up over the line. You experience stress. And that's what I've concluded why so many people want early retirement. Because their life is full of stress. And they want to go from up here thinking life will be great when I come down here. And that's when you're looking at a life that's full of boredom. And what we talked about last week was that stress will kill you. But boredom can ruin your life as well. And we talked about the book by Richard Winter about how our culture is such a bored culture. And what is, we talked about all the things that boredom does to a person. And we ended by talking about ultimately the danger of an easy life, a life of leisure, a life of boredom. And we ended by looking at what Rogers, remember Rogers Curvin? He was about to sell his business at the age of 43 for, for like 50 million bucks. And before he did, he went and talked to two men that he knew had done the same thing several years before. And he, sh- he was shocked to find that both of them were divorced. Apparently from having affairs, you know, in their boredom and playing with their toys, they ended up cheating on their wives. And so he went out and interviewed 30, found 36 people. 36 people who, in their 40s, sold their businesses for at least $45 million. And of the 36, 34 of them had gotten divorced. And we 
we talked about what boredom can lead to. And one of them is sexual immorality and sexual addiction. And that's kind of where we ended. On a real positive note. <laughs> so I want to kind of pick up on that today and kind of look at it more from a biblical standpoint, what we, what we talked about. Um, and before I start, I want to read a quote that I stumbled upon. I don't know who, who, who this, I, I don't know who to attribute it to. Uh, but I had it written down, and so I'll use it anyway. Author unknown. It's not so much that prosperity corrupts us. It's what prosperity makes available to us that can potentially corrupt us. That's what happened to those men. It's not so much that they sold their businesses. It's once they had nothing to do, and they had all this money, look at what was available that could potentially corrupt them and did corrupt them. And you know what? Guys, you see this also consistently in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament. How many of you are familiar with the term Sodom and Gomorrah? I think you probably all are. The two cities that are destroyed by God. But most people would say, when you think of like Sodom, what do you think was the main sin of, of, of the, the people in the city of Sodom? Sodomy. Something. Well, well, yeah. Let's just put this: sexual perversion. But that's where sodomy comes from. The word. Amen. Now, everybody thinks that's the main problem with with was was with Sodom, was they were sexually perverse. But Ezekiel tells us something else. Turn to Ezekiel sixteen. Now, I know some of you not don't read Ezekiel on a regular basis, but it's right past Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. We learn something completely different about Sodom in this, these two verses we're going to look at. Ezekiel 16, 49, and 50. All right, everybody there? Everybody found it yet? We're going to wait for everybody. Ezekiel 16, chapter 16, verses 49 and 50. All right, Reynolds, you want to read those for us? Be happy to. All right. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. Reynolds read from the NIV. Let me let me read from the NAS. It says, I mean, same thing, but it says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and listen to this, she and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, and listen to this, careless ease. Didn't you say a life, an easy life? Careless ease and she didn't help the poor and the needy thus they were haughty and arrogant and committed abominations before me and therefore I'm removed when I saw them commentator Matthew Henry says an idle life of ease is like standing water it very quickly becomes stagnant and filthy now let me give you another example of this think about in the book of Daniel we've looked at 
we continually always seem to go back to Nebuchadnezzar when we want to talk about arrogance. But y'all remember remember what happened? In fact, Daniel is, is right next to Ezekiel, so turn to Daniel. Remember chapter 4? Listen to what Daniel warns King Nebuchadnezzar. Alright, listen at verse look at verse 27. This is what he says to him. Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness, from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, in case there might be a prolonging of your prosperity. And then, of course, does he heed what, what uh, Daniel says? No. And you see his incredible arrogance in verse 29. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? What do you see there? Arrogance. But you know what's interesting? You really kind of get to the root of his issues. You've got to go backwards to verse 4 in chapter 4. So go back to verse chapter verse 4 now the NIV says Nebuchadnezzar was at home in my palace I Nebuchadnezzar was at home in my palace contented and prosperous but the NAS says I Nebuchadnezzar was at ease there's that word again ease in my house and I was flourishing in my palace I mean you see kind of the groundwork that was that had been laid that led to Nebuchadnezzar's arrogance and failing to care for the people in his kingdom, the poor particularly. Think about David, guys. Think about David. Now we've got to go way back to go to this verse, but go to go back to 2 Samuel 11. Early part of the New Old Testament. 2 Samuel 11. Is uh, Daniel talking about the government caring for the poor here? That's a good question. He, he, Daniel basically says, you know, obviously you're not caring for the poor in your kingdom. You need to be doing that. So, all right, is everybody second Samuel? <clears throat> Take a second and just, I tell you what, instead of having somebody read it out loud, let's just read it silently. Second Samuel 11, 1 through 6. We learn two things about David here before he commits adultery. Where was he supposed to be? Yeah, it was a time it says what it says in the spring at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out. And so instead of, you know, he had as king and at this particular time when they were obviously having in war he had a lot of responsibility and challenge. He should have been up here, or at least here in flow. But David was down here. The second thing is, in verse 2, it says the, in the evening. But the literal word is evening tide. 
You know what evening tide is? It's late in the afternoon. So what was David doing late in the afternoon? Sleeping. He was getting up from his nap. He'd been napping. I mean, here's, here they were at war, and he's not out there in the battlefield leading his men. He's back napping in the afternoon. And look what happened. He should have been with his men, but instead he chose a life of ease. Alan Redpath, who wrote a great book on the life of David, said, Here you see the consequences of an indulgent life of leisure hours and a slackness in the life of David. Now let's look at one more. Let's look at the Israelites. Look at, it's a description that's given by Hosea, which is right past Daniel. And in chapter, I'll just read it to you. Alright? And then I'll stop, and after I finish this, I'll see what, what comments and questions you got. Um, in Hosea 13, verse 4, it says, I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt, and you are not to know any God except me, for there is no Savior besides me. I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of drought, as they had their pasture. In other words, they'd come into the promised land. They became satisfied. And then once they were satisfied, their hearts became proud. And therefore, they what? They forgot me. You know, I don't know if you noticed this. Do you notice arrogance in every single situation almost? That's what it says that we read in Ezekiel about Sodom. But you were arrogant. You see the arrogance of Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, you see, really, in one sense, you see the arrogance of David. He takes this woman and then has her husband killed. And then you have this. Listen to how Moses described the Israelites in Deuteronomy 32. He says, But Israel grew fat and kicked. You have grown fat, thick, and sleek. And they forsook, they forsook God who made them and scorned the rock of their salvation. That's what Matthew Henry says in regard to these verses. The Jews indulged themselves in all manner of luxury and gratifications of their appetites, as if they had nothing to do but to make provision for the flesh, to fulfill the lusts of it. They grew fat, that is, they grew big and unwieldy, unmindful of business and unfit for it, dull and stupid, careless and senseless, and this was the effect of their plenty. Let me stop here. What, what comments or questions do you have? Are you with me? You see kind of this pattern? And this isn't to say you never retire, because I know we got some people in here probably that are retired. But it's then, what are you going to do once you have retired? Or once you feel, you know, I mean, I met with a guy the other day, he's being forced to retire, leave his job at 65. And so that's not to say that you got, to, okay, I'm going to work till I drop dead. But the, the, the concern is, is, okay, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? Because you really, you see the danger of a life of ease. Comments or questions? Richard, I think of, you know, you describe arrogance here, and I think of that as a more obvious outward expression, which we can all see in other people, sometimes not in ourselves. But I think just as deadly, or at least my experience has been for my own personal walk with God, is pride. Yeah. And pride is a form of it, but to me, pride is a lot more insidious. It's a lot trickier to detect. And can be just as harmful, but in a different way. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah. 
And that's why C.S. Lewis says, <coughs> you know, pride, it, it's, it's the great sin. And one of the reasons it's the great sin and the reason it's so deadly is for what you just said. He says, because you don't see it in yourself. You see it in everybody else. Oh, I can see the pride in your... But it's like, I'm, I, I'm not subject to pride. I don't have a problem with it. And when we, in reality, it's, it's, it's our great struggle. Anybody else? Okay. Um, how many of you are familiar, as we kind of bring this back to home, you know, we look at, we're in the Old Testament here. Um, how many of you are familiar with a guy, a historian by the name of Alexander Tyler? Any of you heard of him? Uh, he was a Scottish historian. He lived from 1747 to 1813. He taught at the University of Edinburgh. And he basically, he studied ancient civilizations. And after studying the fall of the Athenian Republic, he made this observation, guys. I, I, please hear that. What I'm going to read to you was written 200 years ago. Okay? Tyler says this, I quote, a, demo, a democracy is always temporary in nature. It simply cannot exist as a permanent form of government. A democracy will continue to exist up until the time that voters discover they can vote for themselves generous gifts from the public treasury. From that moment on, the majority always vote for the candidates who promise the most benefits from the public treasury. With the result, every democracy will finally collapse due to loose physical policy, which is always followed by a dictatorship. Now that's that's written 200 years ago. He goes on to say, the average age of the world's great civilizations from the beginning of history has been about 200 years. During those 200 years, these nations always progress through the following sequence. From bondage to spiritual faith. I mean, that's kind of, you know, we were in bondage to the English. From spiritual faith to great courage. From great courage to liberty. He says a key. From, from liberty to abundance. And then from abundance to complacency. From complacency to apathy. From apathy, from apathy to dependence. And then from dependence, you go back in to bondage. And that's what happened to the Israelites. There Where seems we, there's we there's well uh, a lot of people would say we're down here in the uh, I don't know that's a good question. There's but I tell you where we are. I mean I say we're not maybe not there yet, but democracy finally collapses due to loose physical policy, which I mean we've got a twenty trillion dollar debt. It's and it's just it's just. Someone says, we're not going to do anything until there's a crisis. The problem is, when you have a crisis, the crisis may be too late. You can't do it. But you have to wonder what lies ahead for our country. You know, there's an additional point that somebody made that says, that's why a successful democracy has to have a strong Judeo-Christian underpinning uh, to to keep it going. Yeah. Well, I'll come back to that in a minute. I'm going to read from Francis Schaeffer. But, um, Richard, what's yeah. the name of this guy that you talked about? Alexander Tyler. You use, if, you, I, if you Google him, you'll get, you'll, you'll, he'll come right up. Okay. You know, but this has an application to us 
and that you see that a life of abundance, a life of ease, a life where you don't do anything with yourself creates certain dangers. And we're not generally aware of those dangers until, again, we get... Remember what we read last week? What, what did Mike Tyson... Is it Mike Tyson who said? He said, yeah, they had a plan. You know, they had a plan up until the time they got hit. <laughs> you know, and, and you don't get hit before you, you, you recognize your need to, to change course, change direction. But... Let me, let me just share this thought. One of the great, maybe the greatest danger it poses, and you saw this, and I'm going to make mention of it in a minute, but you saw this in the, in the scripture that we just read in the Old Testament, is that it leads to a person losing their burden and compassion for others. When we think about Sodom. So they didn't care for the poor and needy. What did, what did Daniel Say to Nebuchadnezzar. Think about David. He had no regard for this woman, Bathsheba. She was a married woman. And he commits adultery with her and then has her husband killed on the front lines. And he did it without feeling a lick of guilt or compunction until he was confronted by Nathan. I mean, think about what an incredible corruption that had taken place in the life of David. And this is, that's what happened to him. He wasn't doing what he's supposed to be doing, and he was—he <laughs> spent his afternoons napping and then looking. He didn't have anything to do, he was, and then he sees this beautiful woman taking a bath. You know, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the. Uh, he was a—he was one of the great scholar Christian scholars in the last century. His name was Francis Schaeffer, and he wrote a book in 1976. Which is what, 41 years ago? Is the math right on that? 41 years ago? Yeah. He wrote a book called, titled, How We Should Then Live. And it traces what's happened in Western civilization. And he does, he has all these pictures. He, he, he deals with the arts. It's a, it's a fascinating book. Well, anyway, he made, a, he made a, a series of films on this book. Like, I think, 10 films. And it was like a two-day event like going to a seminar. And he, he went through, I was living in Atlanta at the time, and he came to Atlanta, and I went to it, and it was fascinating. They'd show each film, and Schaefer was there. And he would then stand up and answer questions. And what I remember most is what he predicted, what he saw happening to America. He said, you know, at one point in our nation's history, the Christian dominant consensus had the greatest influence in our culture. But then he said, and I don't remember whether it's in the book, and I recommend the book. I can't remember whether it was the 60s or the 70s, probably the 60s, maybe even before then. But it began to weaken the influence of the church, the influence of the Judeo-Christian tradition on our culture. And what he predicted 41 years ago, and he addressing this primarily to the church, he says he, he was concerned, he saw that we were adopting to what he called impoverished values. And the two impoverished values, and, and you, only you, can, you can answer this yourself, has this come to pass? Well, was he really prophetic? He said the two impoverished values were personal peace and affluence. Now let me tell you what he meant by per personal peace, maybe not what you think. Listen to what he says. This is right out of the book. He says personal peace means just to be let alone, not to be troubled by the troubles of other people 
whether they're across the world or across the city or across your street. It means to live one's life with minimal possibilities of being personally disturbed. Personal peace means wanting to have my personal life pattern undisturbed in my lifetime, regardless of what the result will be in the lifetimes of my children and grandchildren. He's talking about losing our compassion. Well, I don't want to be troubled by anybody else's troubles. And he says the second, of course, is affluence. means just an overwhelming and ever-increasing prosperity. A life made up of things, things, and more things. A success judged by an ever-higher level of material abundance. I mean, I've heard it said that one of the, the primary ways you can judge the spiritual vitality in a person's life is by the compassion that they have for the hurting and for the poor and for the spiritually lost. Let me stop and ask comments or questions. Anybody? If that were adopting what what kind of values? Impoverished values. Anybody else? um, Yeah, Mo. It kind of reminds me of some of these dot-com wizards that are predicting the future for us. They say that um, robotics is going to be our savior. That we won't have to do physical labor anymore. Yeah, yeah. And we're going to end up in a place that they describe, and it sounds like heaven on earth. Yeah. Um, but that's not yeah. that's it's not going to be. It's it's interesting. Um, I'm going to close our time together reading something that's very very pertinent to what you just said, but it was written 35 years ago. But uh, just so, just hold. That's a, I, what Moses said. Is, I mean, you know, I think he's what he's what what he what they're predicting, what they're saying is true. As if you know, we won't have to do anything. We'll let the machines do everything. But as we said last week, you know, God ordained for us to to work, to be productive. I'll put it that way, to be productive. And when you're not, you know, as we said, things happen to you. What else? He said they're going to distribute a universal income to everyone. Like I don't know what it is, but well, that what um, uh, what's the Facebook guy's name? Zuckerberg. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's Richard. It seems like where that's coming from, right? It seems like most of this uh, <laughs> attitude began right down in Wall Oh, oh, guys, hold on. John's talking. Go ahead. During Earl Warren's tenure as uh, head of the Supreme Court, when they banned uh, religion in the schools, prayer in the schools, and that yeah. seems to be a line of demarcation from. Yeah, uh, could be. Could be. I mean, you know, there it, it, and really, that's kind of what Schaefer's saying. We've kind of lost our influence. The church has lost its influence in the culture. In fact, what, what we read uh, last week is, is that, uh, or was it the week before, when I read that article? about, um, you know, how Christians now, I mean, we never thought Christians in our culture would be persecuted, but you're seeing it. You're seeing that the, it, uh, you know, I read, what was that article I read? Do you remember? Do you remember? Very much the same thing you just said. Um, anyway, what else? I want to make a few comments about the poor and the spiritual loss because you know if you really think about it, there's two types of poverty. You got material poverty and you got spiritual poverty. And the scripture addresses this. 
And I tell for time's sake, why don't we do this? From George over on this side, why don't y'all look up Deuteronomy 15.11? And from Thornton on this side, how about y'all looking up Jeremiah 22.16? Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 15.11 Jeremiah 22.16 Jeremiah's right past Isaiah Everybody read? J.K. But the poor will never cease to be in the land. Therefore I command you, saying, You shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy, and poor in your land. Okay. Yeah. So what does he tell us there? Don't be stingy. Okay. They'll always be poor people. They'll always be poor. Jesus, remember Jesus said that. Remember when the woman was pouring the ointment all over him and, and, and Judas complains? You know, this could have been sold for 200 whatever denarius and money given to the poor. And Jesus says, the poor will always be with you. And it's not like he's saying it's a horrible thing to be poor. But we are told to care for the poor, which leads us to Jeremiah twenty-two sixteen. Who's got it? Daniel Dillon, you got it? He defended the cause of the poor and needy, and so all went well. Is that not what it means to know me, declares the Lord? You know, it's interesting also, is if you look at that same chapter, if you go down to verse 21, it says, and the NAS says, I spoke to you in your prosperity, but you wouldn't listen. I spoke to you in your prosperity, but you, will not, you would not listen. The poor will always be with us, but those who are not poor, particularly the people of God, should be willing to care for the poor. And ultimately, but what's happened is the government's decided to take that role over from us. And we've allowed it. You know, the mark of the people of God is to take action. I love Daniel 11.32 that says, The people who know their God will display strength and will take action. Now, some of the best, the best teaching, I think, on what we're, we're talking about, the poor, the destitute, the down and out, the lost, is in... And I, guys, I know we're jumping all over the place. It's much easier when we're in John. We just stay right there and just park it in John. But um, it's in Isaiah chapter 58. Isaiah 58. All right, we there? 58 what? Uh, 58 verses 10 and 11. Bill Clements, you got it? I do. And if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness, and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in the sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. This is really enlightening. This is, I think, very significant. It's, it says that when you minister those to the down and out, to the destitute, to the poor, to the lost, he says, in effect, there are two consequences. 
One, it impacts you. It has an impact on you. So we'll be like a well-watered garden. We'll be like a spring of water whose waters don't fail. One of my favorite verses is, is uh, Proverbs eleven twenty five. It says, A generous man will prosper, and he who waters others will himself be watered. Some translations say, he who, he who refreshes others will find himself refreshed. But secondly, it says, your light will rise in the darkness. It means God will be glorified. There was a famous letter written by an early Roman emperor. His name was Julian. And Julian was one of the uh, the, the Roman emperors that came after after Christ who wanted to he hated Christians wanted to stamp them out and in a letter that, that, that they have preserved that he wrote he says quote I cannot stamp these Christians out because every other religion takes care of their own poor but these Christians don't just take care of their own poor they take care of every other religion's poor in other words it, it makes a difference people see God is glorified he is honored let your light shine before men in such a way that they might see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So we've been in the Old Testament looking at, at the dangers of a life of ease, a life of boredom, a life that's unproductive. But Jesus talks about this also as we talk about ministering to those who are poor, those who are, whether it's poor spiritually or poor materially. And he talked, we, we looked at it in John 4. I don't know if you remember, but we also talked about it in Matthew 9. So turn to Matthew 9 real quick. Now remember... What we read when we were back in John 4, in verse 35, Jesus says to them, Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They are white for harvest. And then he uses this term again in Matthew 9, 36 to 38. Jace, you got that? 36 to 38. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Can you read it? I need my glasses. I tell you what. All right. Well, let's these, these may work. Okay. So see if they don't. We'll. Okay. Thirty-eight to thirty-nine. Okay. This is uh, thirty-six. Thirty-six to thirty-eight. Um, is it? Uh, he taught me. Uh, he taught in their meeting places, reported kingdom news, and healed their diseased bodies, healed their bruised and hurt lives. When he looked out over the crowds, his heart broke, so confused and aimless they were, like sheep with no shepherd. All right, what is that? Matthew? He started at 35. He started at 35? Okay, all right. I know, I, I'm not sure because mine's did not. You, did you go through 38? No. no. Uh, okay. He, it says, what a huge harvest. Okay. He said to his disciples, how few workers on your knees and pray for harvest hands. Okay. That's I'm not. What translation is that? That's interesting. Message. Message. Okay. Remix. That's the message. It's the message. What does he say? Thank you, Jake. He says, "The harvest is what." The problem is the workers are few. 
I mean, he's in, in, in Matthew and in John, he says there's a huge harvest out there, guys. And he doesn't tell us why there are a few laborers in the harvest. And so maybe Schaefer was right. Affluence, prosperity, and ease causes us not to want to get involved in anybody else's life. I, don't, I, want, my, I want my life to be undisturbed. I, don't be bothering me. I don't have to bother with anybody else. So maybe this is this is what we see is is how shall I put it? It's it's the seems to be the condition of man, and we and we so easily gravitate towards that. Now, clearly, a second consequence of a life of ease and a life of leisure. Is, and we, I, mean, I don't have to spend much time on this because we saw it in what we just read. It's easy to drift into an immoral lifestyle. Think of the, pe- the people of Sodom, King David, the Israelites, what we read last week of Rogers Curvin, the 38 men of the 38, 36 fall into adultery, get divorced. But you know, there's a final danger that I think that a life of ease and leisure leads to that's deadly as well. And it's it's well I'll just I'll just say it's it's hedonism. You know that term, hedonism? Um that's what the rich fool that we read about last week. Remember what he said? I can build bigger barns and do what? Eat, drink, and be merry. Eat, drink, and be merry. I looked up the word hedonism. It means it is the belief that pleasure and satisfying your sensual desires is the sole aim and highest good in life. And as the as economist George Gilder said, this is a, I don't know the Gilder's a Christian. He says achieving prosperity without becoming hedonistic will require heroic leadership, courage, and discipline. Because he says history will tell you that hedonism leads to not only a shallowness in your life, but a deadness to your soul. Now, what I'm getting to read to you is very powerful. It was worth you coming to just to hear what I'm getting to read to you, okay? Um... As we think about this thing about hedonism, just everything we've we've read thus far, um, <coughs> I'm going to read this to you, and then I'll stop and see what you have to add to it. Um, I read a book about 25 years ago um, that was very powerful, it had a real impact on me, and the title of the book was, and it's not a Christian book. The title of the book is. Or it was, is, whatever it is, amusing ourselves to death. Any of you heard of it by Neil Postman? Any of you heard of it? It was a best selling book. Um, and he wrote it in 85. So that's 32 years ago. But it's incredible how prophetic his words are. And before I start, just to make sure, are all of you are familiar with the novel 1984 by George Orwell? about Big Brother, warning about Big Brother and communism. It was written in 1949. You know, when the basically that's when the Soviets were really, you know, becoming a a power, uh, just a a great world power. 
and everybody was afraid of the, con- of the you know there's a communist behind every door and this is what post this I'm gonna read to you uh, part of the forward to the book all right I want you to listen to it he says we were all keeping our eyes on the year 1984 but when the year came and the prophecy didn't thoughtful Americans sang softly in praise of themselves because the roots of liberal democracy had held. Wherever else the terror of communism had happened, we at least had not been visited by Orwellian nightmares. But we had forgotten that alongside Orwell's dark vision, there was another book, slightly older, slightly less well-known, but equally chilling, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Contrary to common belief, even among the educated, Huxley and Orwell did not prophesy the same thing. Orwell, in 1984, warns that we will be overcome by an externally imposed oppression like the communists. But in Huxley's vision, no big brother is required to deprive people of their autonomy, maturity, and history. As he saw it, people will come to love their oppression. Listen to this. To adore their technologies that undo their capacities to think. Now, this was before the smartphone. This was before the the personal computer. This was before the laptop. What Orwell feared were those who would ban books. What Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban a book because there'd be no one who wanted to read one. It's a good question, guys. Are we reading? I mean, what are we doing? What are we filling our minds with? Orwell feared those who would, depri- would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much information that we'd be reduced to passivity and egoism. Orwell fear- feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared what Orwell feared we would become a captive culture. Huxley feared we would become a trivial culture preoccupied with how we feel. In 1984, Huxley added, people are controlled by inflicting pain. In Brave New World, they are controlled by inflicting pleasure. In short, Orwell feared that what we hate will ruin us. Huxley feared that what we love will ruin us. And this book is about the possibility that Huxley and not Orwell was right. You know, guys, as I shared last week, as we we ended up, is that, you know, we are all, I really believe, that from 50 up, we're we're approaching, or we're a lot. Most of us are in the most productive years of your life. I mean, you're so much more mature and wiser than you were when you were 30. You have more influence now than you did when you were 30. You have a sphere of in, a much wider sphere of influence than you did when you were 30. The question is, what are we going to do with these years? 
And because I believe that God does have a, has, has a plan for our lives. He wants to do something and work in and through each of us. And our question is, what is that? And do I want to follow God's will for my life? As I look at the, at the really, the second half, of, some of us are in the fourth quarter. But the bottom line is, you know, what are we going to do with those years? What are we going to do with our life? Because I really don't think that anybody sitting at this table wants to live a life of leisure, bored to death, and being totally unproductive with your life. Any final comments or questions? I appreciate the fourth quarter analogies. Aldous, yeah. yeah. I'm in it with you. I'm right in it with you. I'm sorry. What did you ask, Thornton? I got it. Okay. Is uh, I have a practical question. Practical. So is it is it enough to give money to some of these charities that do work with poor people, or should you be actually well, you know, I, I think that that ultimately, you know, you have got to determine what God wants you to do. I mean, I, I think that uh, <laughs> you got to have both. Yeah, I, 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 well, you know, I do think um, it's kind of like um, uh, there are years of your life where you probably have are making and have more financial resources than others and less time, and less time. but then there will be that, that that as you move forward you will have more time on your hands as well and that's what the question what you're going to do with yeah. that time but yeah. there are also people who are employed full-time to take care of the poor and they need to be paid yeah that's so true. I think they both have equal weight. Well, way. you know, the, the thing, we, we could talk for a long time about the poor. You know, I brought in clear story for some of y'all to, to, to be introduced to. Uh, there are a lot of, of great, great ways that you can you can serve God out in the world. What you've got to figure out, what is, you know, what are you wired to do? What is God, how has God put you together? What, you know, what is, this is the best, I love this term, and it, it comes from, I love uh, Oz Guinness's book, The Call. What is he calling you to do? Because what he's calling you to do and what he's calling Cobb to do versus Jace versus Dan versus John is going to be completely different. But I believe that I do believe there's a call in our lives. And I do think work is a part of that call. But there's some point you quit working your regular job and you go do some other work. But you got basically you have to have to think about it. Uh, and that's why I try to encourage people all the time, even while you're working. You see, Paul pray this all the time. Pray that God would open up a door to use me in the life of somebody. And if you do, I'm telling you, if you begin to pray that way, God, you just get ready. He'll provide the opportunity. There are opportunities out there. We just got to be aware of them. Our problem is, like Schaefer says, it's so easy to develop an attitude. Yeah, I just don't want to be bothered by anybody else's problems. I ain't got, I ain't got time. That's kind of, I think, how easy it is for us to think that way. Guys, I read, this was a very sobering message these last two weeks. Uh, it was kind of <laughs> somber when we started thinking about our country and where we're headed and whatever. But, you know, as I said, we should not despair. God is sovereign. He is in control. Um, and, you know, ultimately the truth went out. But we're going, this, is, this is a difficult time that we're going through right now in our, in our country. And it'll be in, real interesting to see where, where all this ends up. You've been listening to the Reliable Truth Podcast 
with Richard E. Simmons III, founding director of the Center for Executive Leadership in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources, please visit our website at www.richardesimmons3.com or by email to richard at richardesimmons3.com.